This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. One welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Welcome to show 33 of Jordan Space. I'm your host, Steve Phillip, and I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Danny and Paul. Welcome to you both. Shortly, we'll be speaking with our guest, Dr. Sanderson Oni, known to many as Sandy. And amongst his extensive background in mental health and suicide prevention, he's also working with the World Health Organization. Before we speak with Sandy, Paul, it seems appropriate, given we're going to be talking a lot about what's happening elsewhere in the world with Sandy today in suicide prevention, to maybe look outside of the UK for this week's show to discuss the situation with suicide more globally. What is it useful for us to understand about suicide throughout the world and perhaps how some countries differ in terms of the number of deaths per head of population? I think it's really important that we look globally at the situation and not just suicide, suicide prevention. I mean, look at things like COVID, you know, the inquiry that's going on there. We didn't really learn from what was happening elsewhere around the world and struggled and, and, and sadly many people died because we weren't learning lessons from what was happening elsewhere. Suicide prevention is a global activity. There's, there's global infrastructure. There's the International Association for Suicide Prevention, which was established in 1960. And we have the World Health Organization and other global organizations involved. And so we know a lot through those organizations about the global picture. We know that 700,000 people die by suicide around the world each year. There's one suicide every 45 seconds somewhere in the world. So we can go and look at the problem and understand the problem. And we can also look for solutions, look at what people are doing to get those suicide numbers down. And it's very instructive when you do look at the global picture, because for example, the World Health Organization actually resisted looking at suicide for many, many years, and we had to lobby and lobby and lobby. And eventually, in 2014, uh, they decided they would actually look at suicide. They said previously they hadn't looked at suicide because their, their remit was to look at disease, diseases and illnesses, and suicide wasn't a disease or an illness. So they hadn't previously looked at it, but they did, and produced an excellent report, and now they're part of the solution <laughs> and no longer part of the problem. So yeah, we can learn a lot from looking at other countries and there's so many different angles to this, including every country's different. Some countries have cultural traditions like Japan, where people might think it's an honorable thing to take their own life, or they might have been they might have shamed their family and think it's the honorable thing to do to kill themselves. Other countries have no cultural tradition whatsoever of suicide. It's a modern problem. 
Keeping on this theme of what's happening more globally, Paul, usually whenever we talk about the language around suicide, the term commit suicide comes up and therefore the suggestion that the individual has committed a crime of some kind. Of course, suicide was decriminalized in the UK in 1961, but this isn't the case everywhere in the world. No, absolutely not. And, and sadly, it isn't. We actually still have 25 countries around the world where suicide is a crime and a further 27 countries where the legal position is unclear. So that's 52 countries around the world where people are not free of that stigma and that additional pain. And in fact, that's a total of 1.2 billion people around the world. 1.2 billion people live in countries where it is not, where, where suicide is either illegal or the legal status is not clear. And so it's something that we all have to be mindful of if we want to get the global numbers of suicides down. That's one of the things we need to do, decriminalize. And Lifeline International was set up partly with that purpose, specific purpose of decriminalizing. And there is a lot of activity going on around the world to achieve that. We had two successes last year with Ghana and Malaysia decriminalizing. And one of the things that people in the UK might want to just think about, because they might think, what's this got to do with me? <laughs> Some of those laws exist because of us. They exist because of the British. They didn't actually have any laws criminalizing suicide until the British imperialists arrived and created them. And we removed ours in 1961 here, but we've left others around the world. So we have a duty to try and go out there and remove these laws that we created in the first place. Yeah. And there's other countries, huge countries with huge populations like Nigeria. So we're going to talk about Indonesia later, another huge population of success there. But it is still a criminal offence in Nigeria. So, again, lots of people doing great work to try and change that situation. Danny, what, what are your thoughts on, on some of what we've just been talking about? As we've been saying, suicides and attempted suicide is still considered illegal in many countries worldwide. And as Paul was saying, you know, this adds to the distress caused by those who attempt, it adds to stigma, and ultimately it does hinder people getting the help that they need. As you also mentioned earlier in this country, Parliament criminalised suicide in 1961, but it's actually only been in recent years that a ban was lifted by the Church of England for full Christian funerals for people who take their own lives. And that ban came from a traditional view, a traditional attitude that, that suicide was a sin. Unfortunately, public attitudes have changed and understanding of mental health has developed, but it's clear that worldwide decriminalisation of suicide and views of suicide still have some way to go. Yeah, again, you know, the, the religious side, something we're going to be talking with Sandy about today, you know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, the church has such an influence over the stigma around suicide as well, I suppose. But look, many thanks both. We're going to take a short break now. And when we return, we'll be speaking with our guest, Dr. Sandy Oni. Before then, let's listen to some more music and we'll be right back after this. This, this is Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. This week, we're delighted to welcome to Jordan Space from all the way down under in Australia, Dr. Sandy Oni. Sandy has authored multiple books and works with governments and global corporations to improve well-being. He's also working with the World Health Organization as a PhD in psychology and as a research fellow at the Black Dog Institute in Australia. Quite a list there, Sandy. Welcome to the show. It's uh, great to have you join us. Thanks, Steve. It's really, I'm really glad to be here. I'd like to kick things off, if I may do, by asking you about an opening statement on your LinkedIn profile. And that statement reads, 
Dr. Sanderson only envisions a world without suicides. Do you believe yourself that that's an, an achievable goal? And if you do, what provides you with that level of hope? Absolutely. So that's a really great question, Steve. And if I may, for me, it's not about whether it's achievable or not. It's not about whether it's something logistically possible. It's not even about something that's theoretically possible, given a lot of the research that we know. But it's whether it's what we truly hold in our hearts and what we're aiming for in everything that we do, with every podcast, with every piece of research, every, every analysis I do, every article I try to pull out. It's so close that I can almost taste it, that people don't die by suicide. And it's, that's what really drives me. I understand that your interest and passion for all the work you're doing in well-being, mental health, and suicide prevention came from seeing your own family struggle with mental illness, clinical depression, and suicidality. So I was born into an Indo-Chinese family. That means we live in Indonesia. We've had many generations of Indonesians, but we have strong Chinese ancestry and also slaughtered throughout the generations as well. And shortly after I was born, only a couple of months, I think, my dad, unfortunately, had these extremely severe panic attacks. And so due to the level of mental health literacy back then, they thought me as a newborn baby, it was because I had some sort of supernatural misalignment with my father. And that meant, in a lot of cases, quite literally, but thankfully for me, it was only symbolically for a period, they actually gave me away to my uncle to sort of separate me and my father for a period of time. So unfortunately, I've been locked into this battle against distress and mental health from the day I was born. But unfortunately, in my family's history, my dad suffered from panic attacks. My grandfather suffered from depression with suicidality. And even in my direct family, we've struggled with a lot of mental ill health as well. And that led to the breakdown of my family unit. And I think that's what started the ball rolling for me, where I remember being in school and I... Now I look back and it was undiagnosed, but I feel that was my first depressive episode back when I was in eighth grade. It came about again in 2015, where the second depressive episode was much worse, to the point where there would be days when I could think of nothing but how to end my own life. If I might share, I remember explicitly I was sitting during a religious service, and what came across my head was... I'm tired of this. I want to go home. And that was a day that I came very, very close to ending my life. It was in the evening. I was about to head home. I had planned everything in my head. When someone came over to me and gave me a hug, they could see that something was off. And the person just hugged me and said, Sandy, don't go. And I wept. I wept like there was no tomorrow because I can confidently say that if that person didn't come up and, and hug me, just a simple hug, I wouldn't be here today. And that sort of really informs my entire research program where if I can sum up everything that I've done, everything I've failed or even tried to do, it's summing up with the fact that we really need to meet people where they are. And that's it. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with us. One of the things that, that we've often had discussions about here, myself and Steve and Danny and others, is around a, ta a tangible aspiration where, for example, You've got at the global level, you've got organizations saying, let's get the number of suicides down by a third by 2030. At a local level, you've got people aiming for zero. 
They want zero suicides in their community. But at a national level, people aspire to things like a 10% reduction. So the dynamics there are obviously working against what most people in communities want to see happen, naturally down to zero, and even setting aspirations lower than the global aspiration. How do you square that circle? I think that, at least from my personal belief, that we should strive to end suicide, that we should be aiming for zero, of course. Taking into account that there is a real possibility that that's not achievable. Why? Because there have been people who, and this is part of the research that I've seen, because part of my work is actually having to watch CCTVs of people ending their life. And indeed, I've watched over 200 video clips, individual video clips of them, where we can put every possible precaution, and yet, unfortunately, the person still ends their life. And so it's, it's something that I would believe, but it's not something I would say to a family who've done absolutely their hardest to take care of that one person in their family member who then dies by suicide. But that being said, when it comes to policy, we need to aim higher than this. And I believe that we all have different parts to play. I was just sort of interested in that, your earlier story, Sandy, where you said you were separated and you were handed over to your uncle. I was just interested to know what, what your dad's mental health was like after that. Was their theory right that his panic attacks did stop? Was it anything to do with that or... How did that sort of play out? So obviously I'm listening to this secondhand because I would be too young to remember. But unfortunately, he did struggle with anxiety far beyond that, even after I was given back. And so if it did have an effect, it wasn't lasting or significant enough to actually suggest that anything did happen at that incident. So my dad is an absolute trooper. He went to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor who told him he was fine and yet he was experiencing panic and anxiety consistently. He went to see a psychiatrist in a time when in Indonesia we have a term called orang gila where a person mental illness is associated with a person who's on the streets with a lack of agency and control over their body. That's how a very stigmatized version of, of mental health is often seen in Indonesia. Which makes sense given that Indonesia has the world's highest burden of disease of schizophrenia relative to other types of mental health. So that's their introduction to mental ill health. But he went to a psychiatrist and at the time there wasn't any therapy. It's a lot better than it was back then, but he really had to fight for it. Sandy, I'd like to come back to your vision for a world without suicide, if I may. And through your research, I understand that you identified three key pillars to achieving this vision. The first of those involved how to reach people contemplating suicide. And one of the ways I believe you achieved this was by applying quite a pioneering approach to online advertising. Absolutely. So it's it's much larger than, than I previously thought, where now in 2023, there are approximately 1 billion health-related searches on, on Google alone. This is not including the different tech platforms per day. And in fact, the data shows that 77% of all individuals actually start their patient journey on a search page, meaning that if we're not there meeting them when they're searching for help, searching for information, what are we doing as a public health sector? In addition to that, we understand that in many cases, if an individual is contemplating suicide, they develop something akin to tunnel vision, where all they can see is their issue and suicide as a solution. Of course, it's not every case, but this is something we see quite commonly. 
we have an entire industry designed to capture our attention and to lead us into an action. Now, most commonly, it's designed for us to, to purchase something, whether it's to buy fried chicken or buy a new refrigerator. But we can harness this technology to break through that tunnel vision where a person is searching for, for certain suicide methods, can we then present something first? And that's important first, not on the second page, not at the bottom of the first page, first, that offers them help, that breakthroughs, breaks through that tunnel vision, that offers them a lifeline. Now, for me, that's akin to a person standing on a ledge and us tapping their shoulder. And the data is absolutely shocking. So the industry standard for Google Ads engagement rate, meaning they get to the page and then they engage in a meaningful way, whether it's booking a test drive or whether it's putting something in a basket to purchase in, in sort of a fashion website. The average engagement across all industry is 3.75%. Now we ran this in Indonesia where mental health stigma is so high, people will get locked up in chains in villages for demonstrating mental health. Our engagement rate was 89%. What we found is that running it in Indonesia was over a hundred times more effective than running it in Australia or the US when it comes to leading people to engagement. And what was really shocking is that we ran this on the last 14 days of 2023. Within the last 14 days of 2023, in Australia alone, 40, over 45,000 people clicked on an ad responding to distress and suicidality, and then went on to be able to seek help. And so meaning that this is where they are, this is where we need to meet them. It's, it's good to hear that you're doing that kind of work and that you're getting those kinds of results. I've been involved in numerous projects over the last 10 years where people regularly come up with just brilliant ideas for what we can do online, brilliant online interventions, early interventions, but none of that stuff has moved very far, or a lot of that stuff hasn't moved very far in the last 10 years because we tend to come up against an establishment, a government establishment, a suicide prevention establishment, an academic establishment that resists a lot of it. So I'm interested in your experience and your views about the, you know, the barriers to this, how we overcome the barriers, where you've got traction, and this, this kind of ethics debate and how it actually slows down everything to a crawl often in a fast moving technology, technological development area. <laughs> it's slowed down by people. I recently had an opportunity to talk about this at a relatively large platform two years ago, and it was uploaded on site. And there were some very particular vicious comments <laughs> saying that I was bought out by the advertising industry or by the tech companies making these rather obscene accusations towards my character and intention in running a lot of these things. Well, but in response to what you are saying, is I think when it comes to the ethics, we who when we run this as a trial, when we run this from the university, we have to get it through ethics anyway. And so we run it through the university ethics board that checks what we're doing. They sign off. They say, yep, we're okay with this. And another response to, to as you say, sometimes it doesn't get traction. I consider myself a very simple man, Paul. And when things get too complicated, sometimes my mind just can't comprehend it. So I try to look for really simple solutions. For me, not all ideas have to do this, but sometimes it's staring us right in the face because all I'm doing is running ads. All I'm doing is, is showing people messages. 
And so what I would really encourage is to actually look at the existing infrastructure that we have, the less apps we need to install, the less websites we need to install, the less extensions we need to install, the less secondary action steps that we need to take, the better. And so we've actually got really good traction where we're working together with one of the world's largest advertising agencies. We've gotten support from the different tech, tech companies as well. All, and we're actually able to run this because ninety the these ads and this infrastructure exists in 95% of the globe, including low to middle income countries. If we had the site, if we had the ads and the keywords, we could run this in a day anywhere across the world because we're just using existing infrastructure that requires very minimal steps or intervention of basically any party. I've read that you, where you talk about that the benefit of digital interventions is that they can be applied cross-culturally. So even though there might be sort of language barriers and differences in that way, um, obviously you've still got the sort of general idea and the help getting out there. So I guess that gives a lot more people more access to the help that they need. I think that's a really good point. And going back to my philosophy that we need to meet them where they are, where one of the studies that we did is we actually tailor to a regional language called Bahasa Java in parts of central Java. Everyone there can speak Indonesian. They understand it, they comprehend it. But at their homes, when they're speaking to their mother, when they're speaking to their children, when they're speaking and they're complaining about their day, they use Bahasa Java. And so we tried to, to tailor the intervention to use Indonesian, which they can perfectly understand. And we had another version that was in Bahasa Java. And what we found is we actually doubled the rate of people who went in and actually sought professional help. They called a hotline, they found a psychologist because we really need to, it's not, we don't tailor for the sake of tailor. We don't adapt for the sake of adaptation, but it's out of respect that everyone is different and they respond to different messages. Sandy, thanks so much for sharing your story with us so far. We're going to take a short break now and we're going to play some more music. And when we return, I'd, I'd like to talk about the second of the three pillars, which led to you helping the country of Indonesia achieve uh, a Guinness World Record, of all things. Um, before then, we didn't have an opportunity to get a full list of all your favourite music tracks today, as we would usually do. But you have chosen one song for us to play, which is Marshmallow Unicorns by Rachel Sermani. Can you tell us why that's special to you? So that song doesn't have a particular significance in that it maps out an incident in my life. But one of the things that, that I feel when I listen to that song is just a sense of the ephemerality of this life, that it talks about loss, it talks about moving on, it talks about grieving, it talks about remembering people and remembering things. And so it really is important to me because apart from the fact that she has a lovely voice and it's a lovely song based on this lovely Irish poetry, but the fact that I'm not necessarily going to be here for a long time. There will be a time when I leave this earth and I want my legacy to be that I've helped as many people as I can. That's a wonderful uh, point to make there, Sandy. Thank you. So let's listen to Rachel Somani now and Marshmallow Unicorns, and we'll be back with Dr. Sandy Oni right after this. This is Yawa Radio. We're talking with Dr. Sandy Oni from the World Health Organization, who is a leading advocate for mental health and suicide prevention. And Sandy, when Paul and I first met you last year via a Zoom call, it was prompted, as I recall, by a post we'd seen you share on social media, which related to the three pillars for preventing suicides, which we're talking about today. And that second pillar particularly relates to how you helped orchestrate the first ever national suicide prevention strategy to be introduced by the government in 
Indonesia, which is the fourth largest population in the world and, and making it the first low or middle income country to legislate suicide as a national strategy. Can, can you tell us how this came to be and what your role was in orchestrating this outcome? Absolutely. So it started a couple of years ago in the middle of the pandemic when I actually sat down and realized, okay, do we have a concerted approach? Because we always talk about how suicide prevention isn't just the healthcare system. It's not just psychologists. It's actually a role. It's actually something that everyone should take part in. And so if everyone takes part in it, shouldn't we have a planned concerted approach to actually do this? Right? And so I realized that unfortunately, Indonesia didn't have one. And so I, I don't want to waffle on too long, but we managed to find some funding. We got partnerships with the Ministry of Health and the WHO. And we said, okay, let's start with a situational analysis. Now, the situational analysis is recommended by the WHO guidelines. But I was thinking, I want to take it a little bit further because typically it consists of experts. And what we mean by expert are psychologists, psychiatrists, academics, policymakers related to suicide prevention or psychiatry. And I thought, I want to know what's going on in media. I want to know what's going on in technology. I want to know what's going on in research infrastructure, because obviously we need good research to do good suicide prevention. I want to know what's going in the marginalized transgender community in Indonesia, which is a very religious country. And so we did the core pillars of that. But I interviewed essentially every industry I could get my hands on, even if they had no expertise in suicide prevention, because with the belief that even though at the moment they're not, or they may not be connected with suicide prevention, everyone in every industry can play and should play a role in suicide prevention. And so what was interesting and came out of that is something that we came across again and again and again and again and again, is that one of the main factors and themes was the theme of religion. In Indonesia, when we open up a meeting, we don't say, good morning. We don't say, hello, we actually say, may God's good graces be upon you. We have five core tenets of the country called the Pancasila, the five sila, the five tenets. And the first one is God above all, Ketuhanan Yang Maha Esa. So in its foundation, the country speaks with a religion tone, which makes sense because Indonesia's had amazing mental health legislation from the 1960s. And yet here we are 60 years later and it's never really taken off. Because why? We're not speaking the language of the population. It shouldn't be me out there. It shouldn't be academics. It shouldn't be the professionals. They listen to the religious leaders. Why? Because it's a deeply religious country. And it makes sense because every time we would have workshops, me and a lot of other colleagues, we would talk about prevalence of depression, prevalence of suicide. And someone would ask me, Sandy, is suicide a sin? Do I like go to hell if I die by suicide? Someone will ask me if someone's, how do I separate between somebody mentally ill and demonic possession? And so you see, we can't be speaking one language. So that's where we thought, let's pivot a little bit. And so if they're not going to listen to us, they'll listen to the religious leaders. So we partnered with this incredible organization in Indonesia called Yakum. It's a Christian public health organization, although they cater for everyone. And we said, let's get the religious leaders together. So we've got the religious leaders presiding over all 270 million people in Lombok in a single room. We talked about, okay, we need to declare something. 
we need to go into our sacred text. We need to go into our beliefs. We need to go and investigate what is the common ground and what do we really believe about mental health and suicide so that we can actually declare that to the population and they know that it's theologically based. And so we came up with what we now call the Lombok Declaration. And in the declaration, the goal is very simple, that we would declare, the religious leaders would declare that it's theologically based, that look, you don't need to be ashamed if you're feeling suicidal or if you're mentally distressed. Seek help, help other people, don't discriminate, and we all play a part in a healthier society. That's basically it. And I think the important point there is, of course, what you're helping to do through that process together with the religious leaders is preventing the sin from occurring. Exactly. So one of the the responses that I now give if someone asks me is suicide a sin is I would say, you know what, if you consider it a sin, how noble is it that a person would seek help but they do not sin? How noble is it that a person comes to you that they don't want to sin and you help them? Or how horrible would it be is because if you're discriminated against someone and as a result, they sin because of that. And so this is the language and these are the themes that we have to converse with them because that's what's in their hearts. This is how we meet them where they are. So we're very fortunate enough to have this signed as part of the larger G20 event in 2022. And I thought to myself, okay, I don't want this declaration to be heard by no one. Of course, I'm declaring something, people have to hear it. How do we make this event known? How do we make it more exciting? And so we thought, let's go for a Guinness World Record. Because previously, a lot of the mental health Guinness World Records was held by high-income countries. I thought, let's go for one. And so we had it in Indonesia. And this is something that I don't share quite a lot. At the end of it, even as much as we tried, we possibly can, we were short $20,000. My wife and I were newlyweds, and this is something I eternally thank her for. We didn't have property. We were still renting this tiny place in Indonesia. And she supported me, and she agreed to actually put out $20,000 out of pocket, even when we didn't have a home, even when we didn't have a lot at the time to actually make this happen. And as a result, we had the religious leader come in view of over 2,000 people online and offline to sign this declaration. And we actually got the Guinness World Record, making Indonesia the first low to middle income country to hold a mental health record. And what I love about it, it doesn't say my name. It doesn't say the, our organization's name, but it says, it says it's a consortia. It's a consortium. Why? So that everyone in the country would take pride and have ownership over what we've achieved. And the best is yet to come where the year after we actually use it to advocate for the inclusion of suicide prevention in law. And keep in mind that in the country where it's it's one of the largest countries that have strong Abrahamic beliefs, that suicide is a mortal sin above everything else. And yet they've legislated there. Suicide made it into health legislation that was passed last year. And it says that suicide prevention is everyone's responsibility. And a big part of that is because the religious leaders came together in support from the Lombok Declaration that we had. Yeah, I mean, that is, it, it's, you know, a fantastic achievement. It's inspiring. And also, it's a lesson for us here in the UK where, and around the world, where one of the things we've been saying to people recently is that suicide prevention is one of the great transformational change challenges of our time. 
and it should be treated like any other transformational change challenge. As you say, what's your situation now? What are you trying to get to a world without suicide or whatever that vision is? How do you get from where you are to where you are now? How do you take people with you on that journey? And I think we get a lot of people saying, well, there's no point talking to them because they're not committed. So we'll ignore them because they're not committed. Well, if they're part of the solution, we've got to find a way to bring them in, right? We can't just ignore them. In your case, it's such a wonderful example. You have to involve the religious leaders. You're not going to get the change. But my question would be, I would imagine what you did there wasn't easy. <laughs> First of all, I do want to respond and thank you for acknowledging that. I know that, sorry, let me try to find my words here. Because I'm getting a little bit emotional. My wife and I, we risk everything. We risk our name. We risk our finances. We risked our reputation and hiring this big hall. I wasn't sure if anyone was going to show up. We put everything we had on the line in hopes that we would help other people. And one of the things I didn't mention is we're really grateful to the Indonesian Clinical Psychologists Association, Association as well as the Indonesian Psychologists Association. There were over 100 clinicians in the room, and a lot of people spoke to a psychologist for the first time in their life. The next day, I came in the same room because that's coincidentally where we had our church service as well. And I absolutely wept. It was fatigue. It was relief. It was just the utter. I was so tired on the day, I actually had to get in shots of vitamin C just to stay, just to stand on my feet. So thank you for acknowledging it, Paul. It was, I acknowledge it was a really big sacrifice on me and my wife's part. We actually had the meeting in Lombok. I remember a, exactly a week before my wedding. <laughs> wow. And so that was in June. And we had the event in October. So we had to prepare that G20 level event within that short time frame. And I don't know how many sleepless nights, just that sheer panic, are we going to be able to do it? And then there are a lot of people that actually told us, no, you can't. You need to rethink this. You need to cancel it. And there were just moments where I kid you not, I went to the team and said, should we cancel everything? Should we just give up? Did we aim too high? Did we aim too big? And even these people are telling us that we're very prolific people in society. But I'm glad we didn't. Sandy, we, we've squeezed so much in today and I don't want to shortchange you in terms of the third pillar, but I know that role was very much about science and, and how that's played into well-being for you and, and a lot of the work and research you've done there. The question really is, can you tell us really why this was such an important pillar for you? Absolutely. So this pillar specifically talks about science infrastructure because even though it has its shortcomings, and I do think a lot needs to change, I do believe in the scientific process because I think that one of the things that really stand out about the scientific process is peer review. If I'm passionate about something and I'm evaluating it in a silo, I can very easily, very, very easily delude myself into thinking it's more effective than it is. This has been shown in social psychology time and time again. I will find things that I want to find. I will see things and believe and reinforce things that I want to see. But what I love about the scientific process is there are people who I don't know, I might know them, I may not, that'll tell me, Sandy, you're wrong, with the exact same heart and intention to want to help people, and yet they have an objective point of view. And so that's why I believe that science infrastructure is really, really important in us gathering, and this extends to data, this extends to understanding the mechanistic 
components of suicidality. This understands, and I come at this as a person with lived experience as well. It means that it's not just my story; it's just not my experience. It's a collection of stories and experience condensed in a form that can be processed in a way that we can act on. For me, that's science, and that's that why makes a lot of sense. Important. I mean, this this is a very emotive subject for all of us that are involved in working in suicide prevention, and it's very easy to let emotion. We you know many charities that have that have done this, many organisations let emotion run away with great intentions, but obviously when we break it down to the science, and we need to be objective about everything we we do. One thing that I'd definitely like to add is that I think the scientific process is important, but science cannot prevent suicide alone. In the end of the day. We can write as many papers, but it will take each and every one of us on every level to actually go. I'm going to contribute in this way. Whether it's a person writing policy, whether it's a person designing a new app, whether it's a person just tapping another person on the shoulder, that collective ecosystem is what I believe is going to achieve the goals that we want to see. It's really interesting. Again, what what you're saying there, Sandy, and appreciate the fact that you are seeing the value in the scientific process, but also the limitations, perhaps, of the. Rational, objective scientific process. It needs the the passion. You, you certainly expressed the the passion and demonstrate the passion as well. I think I said to Steve one of the things I said one of the when, not long after we first met. It, 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 suicide prevention needs it needs fire in the belly and ice in the head. You know, it, it needs that combination. I suppose the final question for you: Sometimes do we get a bit too scientific, a bit too objective, a bit too data obsessed? You know, like for instance, when somebody with lived experience just comes up with a new idea for what might reduce the number of suicides. And they've got 16 hurdles to get through before anybody will kind of accept that as an idea that might save lives. I do agree that sometimes we can get bogged down in the data. I do agree that sometimes stories and people's lives can get lost in the statistics. I also agree that sometimes as people with lived experience, we can get a little bit too emotional advocating for our own perspective that we often forget other people even fellow people with lived experience. And so to that, I say, you're absolutely right where we need fire in our bellies, but ice in our heads, where I think the most effective suicide prevention breakthroughs will come, not when we're necessarily elevating just science or just lived experience or just one aspect, but when we learn to come to the table and realize it's not about us. When we realize we come to the table that there are, it's not just about us and our story and our research and our data and our viewpoint is about acknowledging that it's about the people out there who exist now and will exist in the future that we need to help. And I think that when we come to the room with that sort of humility, as both researchers, scientists, people who live experience, that's when we can really get things done. And I speak as somebody who's a researcher with lived experience. Thank you so much for coming along today to share your story on, on Jordan Space. And I think it's going to be a hugely impactful listen for everyone. Sandy, we always end our conversation by asking our guests to share a message of hope. And I'm just wondering what your message of hope would be and who would that be for? So Steve, Danny, and Paul, my message of hope is this, especially for people who are weary and heavy laden working in the suicide prevention space. It's always quietest at the eye of the storm, meaning that we are the last people to see the impact that we make. And so don't give up. I think that's a perfect way to say 
Dr. Sandioni, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to play another track now. This one, Elton John and Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Been a real pleasure speaking to you today. After we play this track, Danny, Paul and I are going to come back for a roundup of today's show. So let's listen to Elton John and Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Now, did you know more and more people are starting the day the Yower Breakfast way? Uh, why don't you join me for breakfast from 7am right through till 11am every day of the week on Yower Radio. We are your truly well-being and happiness station. Why not start your day by bringing the feel-good feeling to every day? Join me for Yower Breakfast from 7am every day of the week. Welcome back, Danny and Paul. You know, incredible conversation there with Sandy uh, and really interesting to get a perspective on what's happening elsewhere in the world. Danny, what were some of the things you took away from our conversation with Sandy? I think the biggest takeaway I took from our talk with Sandy is that each and every one of us can play a part in suicide prevention. So whether it's researchers, whether it's those working in suicide prevention, those with lived experience, it's so everyone coming together and collectively making a difference to reduce suicides. I think that's really important. And that, that was a message of so many messages, I suppose, to take away, Danny. But that collectively came across, didn't it, that we could all play a role. Paul, what, what were some of the things you took away? Well, I was thinking about the guests that we have on the show. And some of them we call lived experience guests and some of them we might call professional guests, as if those two are completely distinct things and they rarely are. So obviously we initially connected with, with Sandy because of his professional work that he was doing in Indonesia, the work he does with, with digital you know, tech for good. And then we get the chance here to explore his personal situation, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. You know, the fact that he answered that question about where his mental health and suicide lived experience journey started at birth. You know, I mean, that was, that was something to, to shock us to start with. But yeah, just talking about that culture in Indonesia, talking about all the work that he's done. And also he's just, I felt it wasn't like an interview. It was a bit like, like when we had Sankita on the show, it's like a spiritual experience, you know, he, he was deep in thoughts and he collected his thoughts and answered all our questions really carefully. And I was really appreciative of that. But at the end of the day, I think we have to say that what he's achieved there in Indonesia is phenomenal and inspirational to bring all those religious leaders together. And again, he, 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 mind-blowing when he said that you know Indonesia had 460 different religions you know it's absolutely extraordinary but bringing all those people together and getting them to agree and I think he's taught us all a lesson here in the UK because we do push people away we say oh we don't want to talk to the religious people well they're part of the solution we say that we don't want to bother with people who are committed to this well they're part of the solution as well and you've got to look at change and that final lesson is around sin too often we switch off. We say, well, sorry, if you call it a sin, I'm not going to talk to you. I think you're wrong. You've got to change your attitude. You've got to change your language. But Sandy was much more conciliatory. He was much more collaborative. He had humility. He listened. And he worked out a way of helping those people get through this by saying, okay, so you'll be in favor of suicide prevention then, won't you? Because you wouldn't want anybody to be sinful. I think that's brilliant. I totally agree. And I couldn't help think as we were listening to that of all the work and conversations that we, we have at the Jordan Legacy in the UK with the Southern Asian communities here who face, you know, many of the same challenges and issues there around religion and, and suicide being considered a sin. So my mind was racing over time thinking there's some fantastic lessons for us to take away here. 
Well, that's it for another episode of Jordan Space. My thanks to Danny and Paul and to this week's guest, Dr. Sandy Oney. Thank you also for tuning in. hope you found today's discussion interesting and insightful. And if you felt inspired to support our work to help prevent suicides, you can make a donation on our website, thejordanlegacy.com, or you can get in touch by emailing hello at thejordanlegacy.com. You can engage with us, as always, on social media, following the Jordan Legacy CIC's LinkedIn company page. Of course, we're on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram using the username at Jordan Legacy UK. And we're on Facebook at The Jordan Legacy. You can listen to recordings of this show and previous shows on our website by choosing the menu Jordan Space at the top of the homepage. For now, from Danny, Paul and myself, we'd like to wish you, as always, a safe, healthy and above all hopeful rest of your week. And we're going to leave you with one final track. That is Michael Jackson and Heal the World. This is Yawa Radio. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio podcast. Copyright applies. <laughs>